Hello and welcome to OSW Daily. Uh, for those who haven't been here before, thank you for joining. Uh, my name is Stephen Todd. I am the Global Head of Workplace at NASDAQ and I'm also the founder of Open Source Workplace. Uh, Open Source Workplace is a community uh, committed to sharing knowledge related to work. And I encourage you to go over to visit our website, www.opensourceworkplace.com. So what are we gonna talk about today? Today we have a full agenda. We're gonna be talking about AI, diversity, uh, algorithms, removing bias, personality traits, and uh, really digging into, well, how can technology help eliminate uh, and help organizations in the recruitment process? To do that, uh, we're going to have Barbara Hyman, who is the CEO of Predictive Hire. Predictive Hire is an AI-driven, mobile-first chat interview platform that provides personality testing for candidates. Personality traits are key predictions of fit, employee satisfaction, and propensity to stay. The platform reduces bias and enhances diversity in recruitment. So before further ado, let me welcome Barbara to OSW Daily. Barbara, how are you doing? I'm, I'm well, and you can call me Barb. Only my dad calls me Barbara. Well, you see, I, 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 I do know that your email is Barb, but until you told me yeah. and gave me permission to call you Barb, I was always going to call you Barbara. So there we go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there you go. How are you doing? It's, it's early there. You're in Melbourne, Australia, so... Yeah, yeah, it's first thing in the morning here Monday. Um, first day of a, of a bit more of a freer uh, way of living in Melbourne. We've been in lockdown for six months. So um, we can now travel 25Ks instead of 5Ks. So that's frustrating. Really? Um, wow. so, so, so just so I understand this, because obviously, you know, one of the, the good things about these networks is we get to see what other people's experiences have been during lockdown. And so, so yeah. I understand correctly, you've, basically been limited to a few miles away from your home and now you it's been extended you can travel those distances from your home well there's been a series of restrictions um so we had we had something like 800 a day in terms of covid cases we're now down to one or two so it shows you that lockdown works and as a result of that high number the state was shut down you couldn't travel more than five days retail still closed hospitality still closed you were only allowed to leave your house for limited reasons, a limited number of times a day. It was a mask, mask uh, compulsory here, which I think is a good thing. You know, I think it's an easy thing to do, put a mask on. And I don't want to get into political yeah. things. Yeah, I don't know why but, they make such a big that in the US. It's yeah. not my right. I don't want to wear a mask, but um, yeah, anyway. I know, I know. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's just fascinating to see. And obviously I'm familiar with with some of the Melbourne city situations, I mean, whenever you talk about cases, I mean, you're talking one or two, that's one or two positive cases, which is, you know, that is, is really, really, really small, really low compared to, you know, what's been seen through Europe and the US as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Bar Barb, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, wh what should we know about you? Um, so, well, I live in Melbourne. Um, uh, I'm an immigrant. My family immigrated from Rhodesia a long time ago just before it became independent. And I'm sharing that because I think that really shaped me or has shaped me um, coming from an immigrant background. Um, I'm a mum with three kids from 13 to 21. Um, and uh, I've had probably four or five different careers in my life so far. And this is, the, this is definitely the most fun, um, this job, than what I've had in any other role. Yeah, so you did start off as a solicitor. Um, so how do you go from a solicitor being a C CEO of an AI company? Yeah, I think there's how do you become a solicitor as well? How do you make that choice? <laughs> well, I, I didn't um, want to go there. <laughs> yeah, 
Um, so, look, I, I guess like just in general in my career, you know, I didn't come from a family that were um, university educated. So the decision to do law was really, well, what else do you do? So um, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And so for me, I've been pretty opportunistic about the opportunities that have come at me, I've sort of gone for. And I'm probably the least likely person that you'd find in this role. You know, I'm, I'm female, I'm from HR, um, I'm not an engineer, um, I'm not under 30, so I don't quite fit the norm of a CEO of a, of a tech startup. But I think it works because I've got a lot of great people around me that can do all of that. And what I bring is more of the, I guess, the human element of really understanding who we're talking to every day and what their challenges are and making sure that we're not designing something that works from a technical perspective, but we're designing something that works from a human perspective. So that that's the that's the lens that I bring. No, no, that is like the perfect marriage because in essence, some people may be hesitant when they sort of hear about what the technology is, what your company produces, but then with the background, that HR background, you've lived that experience, you've sat in those roles, you've, you've worked for organizations who have been you know, trying trying to hire people, and therefore you're you're now enabling technology to help that. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, you know this absolutely desire to find a better way to identify talent and high talent with speed comes from my own experience. When I was in my last job as CHRO of a, of a big digital company here, I think it was the largest. Then my boss would say to me, you know, this is really impacting the business now, our product velocity because how many hours is it taking to hire one engineer? It was 100 hours to hire one engineer when you look at all of the time that goes into the coffee chats and the different people that get involved. And when you're hiring 50, 100 a year, that suddenly means you've got engineers who are doing full-time recruitment, not, not development. And so it was a tax on the business. And I think that's one of the challenges in HR is not many people measure the opportunity cost of recruitment to an organization. They only look at the TA team and what they might spend on assessments, but actually the big cost is really to the organization and how much time is sucked into recruitment. Um, that is not their full-time job, you know, or not their real job. There's no such job as a hiring manager. You have another job, you know, hiring is just what you do on the side. And so I think if you can reduce that and empower and enable hiring managers to actually do their real job, that works for them and obviously the organization. Yeah. And, and now to really understand what predictive hire is, uh, you very kindly sent me a research paper. It was published in, in June of this year that really just did lay out what actually the whole sequence, the research, what actually uh, people do and how the technology works. So I, I really wanted to dig into this because I think it's important that one for, for me personally to understand and also I assume the audience at that point as well, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, to provide context, you know, predictive hire delivers, but let's, we take a step back. Predictive personality using answers for open-ended questions. First, why is the personality indicator of a job performance? Why is that so important? Um, look, it, it's it's not new. Um, we haven't invented a, a new lens through which to think about hiring fit. Um, when you think about um, personality, it's something obviously that we all have. Um, it's a continuum, um, much like height and weight. We've got you know, all of the five factors, which is the personality model that we use to underpin the um, uh, uh, the assessment. Um, we just differ in magnitude um, of the height and weight um, that we have. And what personality does is really talk about traits 
at the end of the day. You know, at its core, what personality is a set of traits that define who you are. Um, there's a fantastic book by an Aussie guy actually called Personality. Um, the author is uh, an academic called Daniel Nettle, and he goes through um, how our relationships, both our personal relationships and our professional relationships, are so impacted by our traits. And you know, our traits are reflected in our behaviours, obviously. Um, so if you think about someone who has a trait of neuroticism, you know, that behaviour that you see in your in the in the working environment is you know, anxiety or nervousness. Now, you know, if you're running as we are a startup and you're operating with high levels of ambiguity and um, you really have to be a self-starter and figure out problems yourself and not rely on a lot of direction, you're not going to be that successful if you're hired and you're someone with a high degree of neuroticism. Um, so personality traits and the behaviours they exhibit are fundamentally important to your ability to, you know, survive and thrive in different roles, different environments, but also to the relationships that you're going to build. Um, and, you know, it, it, psychometric testing, if you go back 200 years, which is um, traditionally the way in which personality has been assessed, um, has always used language, natural language, to try and understand people's traits. What we've done is develop a formula to do that without having to ask you 150 multi-choice questions. Um, we ask you a handful of open text questions that you answer in your words, in your voice, and we've been able to correlate those responses to personality traits, not just the big five, but actually a series of traits beyond that. Um, and effectively what we see is that that is highly predictive, your, your personality profile of being hired into a role, a certain type of role. Um, and we, we kind of, you know, if you think about it intuitively, if you think about your kids, I have kids, and how do you provide direction to them on what jobs to go into? You know, you'll know if someone is aligned to a sales role, you know, if they've got the grit, the drive, the resilience, the ability to think on their feet to really, you know, be successful in that role, which is really different to the traits required to be a carer, to be in the healthcare sector, to be a teacher where, you know, empathy, high levels of humility, um, self-awareness are really important to success in that role. So that's why we believe that, you know, personality is so key. Um, as I said, we haven't invented that. But I should also say that our assessment is more than personality. Um, it also captures communication skills and, um, as I said, other traits around um, an individual which aren't mirrored in the five-factor model. Yeah. And, and, and so, I mean, obviously, if we're looking at personalities and we're trying to make decisions based on personalities because we know those traits are important, how then do should people think about aligning that with one the higher manager but to the company that is actually recruiting yeah um it's, that's so uh, i was really thinking about that question um you know if you think about the hiring manager that person is one element in the equation and i to be honest i think in a COVID world or a world of remote work it's going to become less less critical in defining your success in your job um, and like any relationship our personal relationships it's um, there's an element of compatibility that's important, but you're trying to understand, um, you know, how much do you need to have in common, but also do you want to marry someone who's exactly the same as you? Do you want to work with someone who's exactly the same as you? Now, some people might do that, and I think that is the risk of not having AI in recruitment because you end up with mirror hiring. You know, we all know about the organisations that have, if you think about you know the white male at the top and then they're surrounded by white men and they wonder how they ended up like that it's because we feel comfortable 
with people who look like us and sound like us who come from similar backgrounds. But we also know that innovation comes from the intersection of difference. And you have to have differences in order to really trigger um, you know, um, creativity in order to really spark um, you know, a new solution to an old problem. And it's one of the things in my team actually is Booty, who's our chief data scientist, is so different to me, not just in background, but in the temperament and in the personality. And that creates a lot of frustration when we're debating whether we do something because he's far more risk averse being a scientist than what I am. Um, but, you know, we end up in a better place. So, you know, we can all live a really cosy life and marry people who think the same way as us and have friends who think the same way as us and hire people. But actually, you're not really going to create, you know, something amazing when you're all thinking see things in the same way. So that's why I think difference, you know, a level of difference is important for the workplace. Yeah, and, and for the personality traits, now you mentioned a model, and one of the models that you do use is the hexagon personality model. Um, so if you could tell us a little bit about this, but also then, and this is in the research paper, but then also why is this the, the, the model that you did select? Yeah, um, so this all the otherwise known as the five factor, um, and probably Myers-Briggs are some of the most well-known personality frameworks. Um, this framework has now been validated through, you know, decades of research as being the most scientifically valid as a tool for measuring, as an instrument for measuring personality. So that's why we chose this. We didn't invent it, obviously, and it really covers a lot of what's important when you think about the job requirements. You can see there some of those I mentioned um, you can probably think about what permutation of those matter for different roles. Um, Myers-Briggs um, has been around for a long time and it's used a lot in development. It shouldn't be used in hiring, and I think that's a fairly well-known accepted fact. It is not um, regarded as scientifically valid, reliable, as consistent as Hexaco. So that was why we chose Hexaco as the, as the um, really the, the, the ground truth for our personality classifier. So I just want to go back to this because there's something that's gone through my head is as I think about a role uh, and I'm thinking about, okay, is it specific roles that you define how these, the factors that are most important or is it the company that, that sort of identify which factors are more important or am I thinking about that completely wrong? Yeah, no, 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 you're not. Um, so there are two ways that people can access our tech. We have a defined set of role models, um, role uh, uh, predictive models by role. So what we see consistently is when you're hiring for someone in retail, in customer service, for a graduate role, um, that there are a certain common set of traits that are required for success in that role, that you need those to get hired, which is similar to what I mentioned earlier about whether you want to become a care or a salesperson. But any client can also tweak what those, um, what that DNA is effectively, a bit like design your own baby. They can come in and say to us, look, you're saying that sales typically requires these five elements, but our organization's a little bit different. We want to do it with humility. So we want to actually dial up humility. And we use rule-based models that allow you to alter the weighting that you apply to different traits so that you can actually solve for the target profile that you're looking for um, in a way that is explainable and visible um, to both you know, the organization as well as to the hiring manager. So it is... Um, a very top-down, um, curated, um, explainable way to define the role, the role profile. We don't use deep learning models. You know, we're not video AI where what comes out as a recommendation is very hard to explain. 
um, it's completely linear in a way. Um, you can see of the five or six different inputs that go in, which are made up of around 80 different features, why someone ended up as they did. And you can obviously also read their responses. So, you know, we don't use, we made quite, you know, conscious decisions and continue to that we don't want to use any data that you as a candidate do not know is being used. We don't scrape things about you and feed that in. We don't shove a whole bunch of data into the model and hope that it will turn out the right person because you can't explain it. And if you can't explain it, you can't trust it. So it is only what you say in response to those five questions. And, you know, the ultimate validation for us is candidates are given feedback. You know, everyone gets this development experience from it and they're there and are asked to give feedback and say, hey, Steve, does this sound like you? And what people write is amazing. You see that on our website now. We've started to live stream it. So for us is the ultimate, I guess, for me, not as a scientist, but as the ultimate validation that this thing really understands you and it's helping you. Yeah, no, and it's really clever. I did see that streaming across the top of your or your your website. It's, it's really cool with that that real real time feedback. It's it is really interesting. And like yeah. you said, the research paper noted eighty seven point eight three percent of people actually agreed with the personality when they read back their report, which is which is a staggering yeah. number, you know. Yeah, yeah, and you know, but that like there's a percentage that's important to us for validity, but actually it's the impact it's having on people. And you know, what is like I'm pretty passionate about technology and technology for good and technology that's not so great having kids i'm very conscious of that and i think finally there's ai that's for you you know it's not weaponizing you it's not at you um, but actually it really helps you and i think that is quite a change from the way ai has been applied in other fields that um yeah it makes me feel good anyway about the way we've built this yeah, and, and it, you know, you do know that it eliminates bias. And is the bias simply because all the hiring manager sees is the result, which is that hexagon box or, or whatever way it's presented. They don't get to see the individual. Is that how it eliminates bias? Yeah, so there's there's layers of bias, as we all know, that can come in. Um, I think the first reason why it's so powerful to interrupt bias is that it's blind. So it doesn't know anything about you from a, um, you know, racial gender, age perspective, because when you're submitting your answers, you're doing that through a mobile phone or on your desktop and you're not feeding any of that information in another, none of that information goes into the, the decisioning engine. So that drives what we believe um, our high completion rate. So people trust that I'm getting a fair go. And what's really interesting is when we've done analysis on how different groups respond to the whole experience of mobile chat interview, actually older people are the most engaged, like I'm talking over 55. And I think that's because of my hypothesis is that they fear discrimination because when you see them, you know, you can see an age. Um, and um, it's really hard these days to get a job as an older person. We work with some clients who hire deliberately a lot of older people um, and uh, they feel, you know, very safe and we see they their level of engagement is, is exceptionally high. So, so that that's one outcome. So the first one where bias comes in is that you're not, drawing on any of that information. And, you know, in contrast to video, when it's very easy to, I think video basically productizes bias in my view. The other is that the assessment itself needs to be tested for bias. You know, you want to make sure that people with English as a second language or people with autism or people who are, you know, of a certain age are not disadvantaged. And so we test the models before they're deployed for all of those dimensions. Um, and then the third, as you said, is what's revealed to the hiring manager. And um, for those customers who are using it, as you said, they, they do see a name at that point. 
but they don't know any other information. Mm. So they don't know that you went to Harvard or not. You know, they don't know that you're, um, uh, you know, white male. So to the extent that you're trying to minimise bias at that point, obviously we don't, we don't own the outcome. That's the high manager that does that, but we're giving them the most subjective profile possible so that they make hopefully the most objective decision about who gets the job. No, it's fascinating. And it's really interesting that the over 55s are the ones who are actually the most engaged. And I wonder, is it because they know how to write full sentences? Because I don't think the generations after that know how to, but who knows? Yeah. Who knows? We tested it with some really young kids at a high school because we're looking at also this technology being a personalised AI coach bot for you. Mm. And um, some of them, a lot of them use Game of Thrones references. So, you know, we, we don't yet have that data to be able to translate that into what does that mean about you when you make lots of Game of Thrones references. So there's definitely right. different different ways of expressing yourself at different ages. Now, there's always the skeptics out there about AI because in essence, right, it's a human that writes the code. Therefore, there has to be some layers of bias within the code. How, how do you, how, how, should we, how would you respond to that or how should people think about that? Yeah. Um, Look, that's probably the hardest bit about this space is educating people about what it is and what it isn't. So to say that humans write the code is like saying that um, science is biased, you know, of its very nature because it's created by humans. And AI is a science like any other science. You know, in our case, a data scientist has defined a hypothesis that's being tested with some data. Um, in our case, that's the fact that language tells us a lot about who you are. Um, but... Um, the two things that they're deciding on, their human decisions, if you like, are what's the method I'm going to use to test that hypothesis? In our case, it's you know AI, machine learning, um, and what's the data that I'm going to use to do that? And if you think of an analogy, let's say you know climate change, a different field of science, you know what the scientist is doing there is they're trying to identify that certain factors in our environment are contributing to climate change. So there's a set of hypotheses. They choose a method and they use data. Now, if someone uses kind of really random data, um, they're obviously going to be challenged on that. And again, that's the beauty of science is because if you publish, which good scientists do, and that's why we've published our science, is it's going to be challenged. It should be cross-examined. It should be peer-reviewed. Um, you know, all science needs to be falsifiable to be science. That's why religion is not a science because there's no falsifiability because there's no way I can prove to you that God doesn't exist. So, you know, that's really how to think about it is that fundamentally it's really about the method you use and the data you use, which is why, as there should be, there's so much scrutiny on what is the data that goes into an AI um, model. Um, and that's what we end up spending a lot of time talking about with our clients, you know, what goes in, what doesn't, um, to, to ensure they, they trust it, they believe it, and that it's, you know, it's explainable. And, and, does that make sense? No, no, there's a kind of analogy around it. Yeah, it does. It does. It does. What I find interesting is the skeptics. You know, when I ask about, okay, is the current system working, is, or is it broken? They all say the current system is broken. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting with the the, the two mindsets. But uh, let's let's sort of ask another question then. So why should employers use an AI tool to 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 uh, for their hiring? I mean, what's yeah. the benefit for them? Yeah. Uh, look, I, I put it another way, which is how can you not use AI in your decisioning process? And for me, it's recruitment and promotion because those are the two people decisions that really drive your business success, your culture, you know, your leaders are your 
are your culture um, and the same the same challenges um, affect both. So firstly, if you really care about diversity and inclusion, you have to interrupt the bias. You have to use something that isn't human because, you know, look at Wikipedia, there's 140 or something different biases and we're all unaware of them most of the time. So if you really give a shit about that, and, you know, I think there's a lot of rhetoric at the moment and frankly, I think unconscious bias training has had its day. So what are you going to do practically to interrupt that bias? You need AI at the top of the funnel at the earliest point. You know, because all AI is is data. It's just an objective data set. That's what it is. Um, the second reason is that, you know, we can, we can or our, our technology can analyze 100,000 candidates in a few hours. No human or team of recruiters can do that and no one's going to fund that. And it's not so much the speed, because I think speed now is something candidates need desperately because people need jobs. Like, why should you wait three weeks to find out if you've got a job? You know, it's a life or death for a lot of people these days. Um, it's more the fact that as a human, even if you did put a team of recruiters on there, you're going to miss so many things, right? We only see what we're trained to see. And so the ability of a machine to analyze so many bits of data and identify the right pattern, you know, we're never going to be as good as that. Like I think it's Yuval Noah Harari and others who talk about let machines do what they do well, but make sure you bring a human in, you know, to, to, to kind of parent the machine to oversee what the machine's recommending, which is our philosophy. We're, we're more of a co-pilot to the process rather than suggesting that AI should be the autopilot to drive the outcome. Um, so, you know, if you think Myers-Briggs right, 16 personality types, because as a human, we can comprehend 16. Everyone knows their own Myers-Briggs, but <clears throat> personality is way more nuanced than that. And we've seen through our own data, there's at least 400 different personality types. So we can never process that as a human, but a, but a machine can. So if you want accuracy, if you want the ability to really discover the true pattern and the true fit, you've got to involve AI. Um, I think the other is that for the right AI, it's actually so much better than a human. Like, you know, do you want a callback that says, hey, Steve, mate, you're not a great culture fit? Like, what does that tell you? Like, you've learned nothing from that. It's defeating, like, because you can't challenge that. So I think, you know, the right AI can be human and actually a far more rewarding and gratifying experience than what a purely human process can be. And I think that's what we in our technology have dismantled more than anything is that it doesn't need to be this robot um, that is asking you strange questions that sounds like a robot. It can be really normal and intuitive. You're having a chat on a phone. You do that with your mates. You get something back. Amazing. So, you know, I think everyone who's in AI needs to find the human formula. They can't just solve for the problem. They've got to build a formula around it that people can trust and understand. Um, and everyone understands the questions we ask, you know, um, they're the questions that you would ask in an interview. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, obviously I have to imagine that there, there must be a lot of applicants who basically get introduced to the concept of uh, they want to hire work for a company, the company says, I need you to fill this out. There must be resistance, there must be concerns. What, what sort of things do you hear um, from applicants? Um, so we ask for feedback at two points. First, when they complete the chat and then when they get their feedback. Um, I, I mean, I don't know what the latest numbers are, but it would be less than 0.1% or even way less than that who say, you know, this is why am I doing this? This is this is not the way to do an interview. Most people know it's AI, right? They really do. And most people are comfortable with it. And we're talking about, we do a lot of low-skilled hiring. 
So you're talking 16 to, you know, 75-year-olds applying for jobs in retail organisations. Iceland in the UK is one of our clients, you know, a million applicants a year. And they they just want convenience. They relate to it because we're not asking questions like, you know, would you rob a bank if you could get away with it, which is kind of a question that you get asked in psychometric testing or do you find political discussions interesting? Like how is that relevant to whether I'm going to be good in a retail role, we're asking questions about what motivates you, what what makes you want this job, you know, what do you think you bring to this role, you know, what what do you love about working in teams? It's exactly what you would ask in an interview as a human. We ask, but we're asking five questions without you having to dress up or put makeup on, um, and you do it in your own time. So I think the method, the formula, is so comfortable that people really connect with it. And then the fact that they get something back and it's accurate and they learn from it. So we have just seen exceptionally, it's exceptional to get someone who challenges it. And, you know, some people want their data back or their data deleted, um, which I think is fair in this world and GDPR has created, you know, that entitlement. But um, we just do not, we see more resistance from recruiters, way more than what we do from the applicants. Wow, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously, we've talked around a lot about the organization. I'd love to get some of your opinions and some of your views. You know, when you think about the war of talent, right, the war for talent, you know, when we see the pandemic and we see a lot of people losing their jobs around the world, um, yeah. what impact do you think this is going to have in the short term for the war of talent and then potentially the longer term? Well, look, I think it's it's the remote work is a big, if, if I sort of step back for a minute and think with my HR hat on, like, Remote work is monumentally impactful for HR more than any other function. You know, sales, you can still sell in a remote working environment. You can still do marketing, but actually everything about HR is disrupted. So I think HR is in a really tough place right now because how do you not just hire, but on board, develop, promote, make decisions about people. Um, and so I think technology has to be recognised as a really valuable tool, as an aid to help do all of that. You know, one of our clients um, is using our technology to support internal development. So forget recruitment, they're not doing any recruitment, but they see the opportunity for the chat to help people know themselves, to grow self-awareness so that they can be better employees, you know, when they do come back to work. And that's, I think, something that, again, a human can't do, right? And a lot of people wouldn't necessarily rate their manager as being any good at helping them understand themselves. So how do you bring technology in to supplement what humans might not be good at, um, what humans can't do in a non-contactable world. I think in terms of recruitment, what it means is that, you know, like for us now in many organisations, your world is, you know, the world is your your oyster as far as talent. Um, and, you know, I think the whole idea of, of um, talent could come from anywhere, really. Um, you know, we're all working remotely. None of us see each other. Um, we're working in different time zones. So how do you use technology to identify and, and, and recruit for that talent efficiently. Again, you have to do it, you know, using AI um, because you can't do it in person. It's too, too exhausting and, 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 it, and it doesn't work. I think it also, for me, I think some other changes will be that the world of Slack and Teams and those collaboration environments will be absolutely your home. You know, I think we've long confused place, location with culture, you know, that the office is how the culture is created and nourished and you know, I came from an organisation where there was so much work put into the building dynamic and the the, 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 the kind of the room 
the room organization but you know all of that goes away now so i think your home will be slack or teams and you're going to go to that environment to get what you need and that's where tools like ours chat tools are so relatable you know are so aligned to that to that environment how do you throw in different technologies that people can use in that space to get what they need but i also i've written about this i think fundamentally the type of person that you need to succeed in a remote work world is completely different to what you need when you're all working in the office and so how do you test for that and i don't think when i speak to hr leaders that they've sort of figured out how different that um, set of traits is you know you need more resilience you need to be a self-starter um, you need to be self-motivated um, you need to be accountable, right? None of this extrovert who can tell a good story and charm everyone in the office, that's gone. So, you know, how do you make sure you're hiring for those skills that are critical in a world where you're not coming into the office to to get your energy? That that That's a whole new universe for HR and thinking about job matching. No, no, it absolutely is. And, and uh, I love that actually tangent. But I also love how you brought it the back of performance and assessing individual performance within organisations. Do you think then you'd be able to, if you think about what the qualities are for people to work in a remote or a hybrid work type of environment, do you think using the personality traits and then training along the lines to sort of help people migrate to the right metrics for those environments, do you think that's possible? Um, I think that there are a set of traits that are critical now that were not necessary before that organizations need to discover you know, in recruitment and in promotion. I think, you know, um, performance becomes much more visible, right, or non-performance, quality of output um, and your ability to do your work, you know, somewhat independently. So um, there are probably, I've heard through different people, conversations happening now around people's performance that weren't happening before because it's more visible. Mm -hmm. So so is that a good thing? I mean, I, I think so. You know, for organisations, um, it's easy to kind of hide under a rock, um, you know, if, if in some ways when you're all working in the office. But when you're working remotely, it's very evident what your singular, your individual contribution is to, you know, to the team, to the business. Um, so that, so that, that, you know, and obviously the manager still has accountability to have those conversations. But I think to me it's more about how do you prepare your organisation for the future? reality because remote work is not going away and I think the other thing about remote work is that you know we're all just living through zoom which is there's no there's no sophistication in that in terms of understanding a true remote working environment and I'm sure you've read about the guys from github and adamatic mm-hmm. who founded wordpress about the different hierarchies or levels of what remote work looks like and that is asynchronous communication it's you and I not doing this in order for me to get instructions from you it's doing it through slack or some other vehicle and so to do that you need to write well and everyone knows that writing well means thinking well and that's a trait that you can discover through using our technology so who's thinking about that you know I don't see organizations recognizing that um, remote work is is absolutely not back-to-back soon um, it is a very different set of um, cultural aspects one of which is people need to be really good at thinking and writing clearly and who tests for that Right, you can test for it using our tech, but I don't think many organisations test for that now. And those organisations, by the way, they don't do any interviewing like this. They just interview by text or by chat. So they've done what we've built, um, but just they've done it. They've done it manually. 
Wow, that's crazy. It's, it, I mean, maybe you think about the traditional approach. That's just crazy that you would just hire people that way. But they've been obviously very, very successful at it. Yeah. Um, so Barbara, Barb, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'm so formal, aren't I? But uh, yeah. like, I, I just I just want to say thank you. But before we wrap things up, is there anything, last things that you, you want to say? Because I had so many more questions, but i just conscious of time. Yeah, I think I think it's to, to not be fearful of AI and to be curious and challenge and ask questions and mostly understand the data. Um, we have just put out a handbook, by the way, for people to use when they're considering AI in recruitment. You know, it's not about us, it's about here are the questions that you should be asking because I think the more we help educate people and make them feel confident about navigating the space, you know, the better outcomes for individuals and organisations. Yeah. And I, and I will share a link to that and also share a link to the research paper that we referenced at the beginning um, in, in the notes below. But uh, so, Barbara, how do people reach out for you? How, reach out to you. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, so you can ping me there um, or just, you know, Barb at predictivehigh.com. Happy to engage in conversations. So feel free to e email me. Great, great, great. So, Barb, thank you so much for your time. I, I look forward to chatting with you very soon. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Have a good one. My pleasure. Take care.